Tonight on Talking Politics, nearly two years into the pandemic, many parents and caregivers of kids under five are feeling left behind and in some cases forgotten. What more could policymakers be doing to help them stay afloat economically and psychologically? We'll dig into that, the future of Boston's employee vaccine mandate and Governor Baker's final state of the Commonwealth. But first to the race for Baker's replacement, which gained another contender this week, this time on the Republican side. Businessman and political newcomer Chris Doty announced his candidacy Wednesday. I have been on the front lines creating jobs for three decades in our state. With the right team, a little creativity, and a willingness to work hard, just about any problem can be solved. The 59-year-old father of six and grandfather and self-described moderate will face Trump-backed former state rep Jeff Deal in the primary. Joining me to talk about this and more are Yabu Miller, senior editor of the Bay State Banner, and Shannon Jenkins, political scientist and associate dean of UMass Dartmouth's College of Arts and Sciences. Hello to both of you. Shannon, yeah. uh, do you think there's an appetite in the GOP right now for a candidate like Chris Doty? I think there's an important distinction to be made between the electorate at large and the GOP primary electorate, which are two sort of very different um, audiences. I certainly think, you know, Charlie Baker's time in office has shown that there's an appetite for that in the general election. And I think we've seen that a little with Maura Healy refusing to criticize Baker, taking the high road on that, trying to position herself in that lane. Um, I'm less certain that there's an appetite for that sort of candidate among GOP primary voters. Um, and so that's going to be the real challenge for Doty is that a lot of Republican voters like Trump and his endorsement of deal is going to be um, important to them. And so coming in late, coming in with a, not a lot of experience and coming in sort of in the moderate lane is going to make it a steep hill for him to climb in the Republican primary. Yeah, well, what's your take on Doty's prospects? I mean, Doty has no political experience and yeah, the, the, the fringe of the Republican Party has become the mainstream of the Republican Party, as some political observers like to point out. Um, it's just an uphill battle for him. Um, you know, I think that 10 years ago, his candidacy would have made better sense. But right now, he's swimming against the uh, current. Speaking of Governor Baker, as we have here uh, just a little bit, he gave his final State of the Commonwealth speech this week, and one of the things that he did was issue a call for more civility in politics, something he's done before. Let's take a look how he put it. I've talked a lot over the past six years about collaboration and respect, about seeking common ground, about focusing on the issues and not on the personalities. And I get that it's harder to collaborate and it's harder to show respect in a time of high anxiety and trauma. But I would suggest that it's more important during times like these to ask questions, to be curious, to show empathy, and to maintain an open mind than it is to make brash statements and name call. Yabu Miller, what else stood out to you about Baker's farewell state of the Commonwealth? Well, the tax cuts that he's um, proposing, um, you know, a lot of them aimed at, at low-income people and bringing Massachusetts, you know, more in line with the federal policy and other states. Um, uh, but at this, you know, the, so raising the threshold for uh, the, you know, the the no tax status from I think eight thousand dollars for a single person to twelve thousand dollars. 
Um, you know, those are pretty progressive policies, but then sort of, you know, you have to balance that with the uh, cuts to the estate or, you know, the change in the estate tax where instead of going, you know, one going from $1 million to $2 million to trigger um, the estate tax and also a, a change in uh, the short-term capital gains reduction in that tax rate from 12% to 5%. Those together would uh, result in, you know, about $400 million being cut from, you know, state revenue. Republican governors have always had it where, you know, in boom times, they're cutting taxes. And as when the economy eventually contracts, those cuts are felt at the uh, department level. This is not as big as what we saw under Weld, Salucci in the early years of uh, Republican governors, uh, you know, 30-year sort of uh, hold on state government for the most part of the three years. But but I mean it still could I mean it still could have a um an impact down the road uh when the economy um contracts again. Shannon Jenkins, did anything pop out for you? You know, the tax cuts obviously stood out to me as well as a very sort of Republican approach to some Democratic ideas, right, particularly the low income. Um, instead of spending on programs, right, he's approaching that through a tax framework. Um, it also seemed to be a relatively modest agenda, um, which is not surprising. He's a lame duck, right, and people are looking to the future. But at the same point in time, he went through his speech, he went through his list of accomplishments. And, you know, some of those are questionable. I think people really do would debate him on whether the MBTA is, is fixed. Um, there's a lot of people who don't agree with him on that. And, and it feels like his list of accomplishments, when we look back, like, you know, what has been the signature piece of legislation under Baker, I think a lot of people are going to be hard pressed to say, oh, yes, that was his doing, as opposed to like Romney with health care and thinking about education reform. There's not really for the eight years in office a signature policy victory that everyone can point to as being his, you know, shining accomplishment. So it just sort of struck me, you know, he's been a solid governor, but it seemed to be overall a very sort of modest record and modest set of proposals. I have to mention, and I know that we'll have some viewers uh, watching who are keener on the governor's record than your characterization might have suggested. One of the points that he was at pains to make in this speech is the policing reform legislation that was passed. And he folded that into his narrative of Massachusetts doing politics differently than it's done in some other places and, and doing politics better. Uh, do you think that's a, an achievement that might fill that role that you're talking about when people look back and say, what did Governor Baker get done legislatively beyond getting helping the state weather COVID? Do you think people will cite that? I mean, I think that's probably one of his biggest ones, but I'm not sure people credit him to that, right? When we talk about healthcare reform, you know, people affectionately or, you know, disparagingly call it Romney care, right? And so it is attached to Governor Romney. Um, criminal justice reform was a big step forward, but I don't, I'm not sure people picture that as Governor Baker's criminal yeah. justice reform bill, more driven by the Democrats who brought Baker to the table um, as they move that forward. Yeah, Miller, let's turn to Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's employee vaccine mandate, which has been delayed by her administration a couple times and now hit another hiccup this week. A judge stayed the implementation of it. I know that we in the political media get accused of oversimplifying things. Having said that, is this a fight that 
Mayor Wu is losing at this point in time? Considering that 95% of city employees are now vaccinated, it seems like she's actually winning this. I mean, she's going up against the firefighters and two police unions uh, primarily. That's where the majority, the most vociferous um, uh, uh, re you know, resistance is coming from. And, you know, a small number of protesters, the last one I saw on, you know, sort of on, on the news, about four people showed up. Um, they're making an outsized amount of noise. Um, but for, you know, I think the majority of Massachusetts residents, certainly majority of Boston residents support uh, these policies. So I think, you know, I think, you know, that with the latest setback notwithstanding, I think she's really winning this. Shannon Jenkins, would you agree with Yahoo's read on the situation? Yeah, I think so. I think this is about framing, right? And, and framing it as not, you know, who's not vaccinated, focusing on who is vaccinated is important. You know, and in some ways, the, the ruling perhaps gives Michelle Wu a little bit of an out, right? Like, what are you going to do if the judge says it's going to move forward? Are you going to fire that those 5% of those employees? I'm not sure she would have wanted to go there. Um, and so in some ways, I think she can claim credit for moving the needle up on vaccination rates um, and then basically saying, look, my hands are tied you know, I have to honor this, this this ruling and I can't do that. So in some ways, maybe the ruling helps her out a little bit politically out of a tight spot. Hmm. Yabu Miller, the House of Representatives in the legislature took up voting reforms and voting rights this week. They seem ready to embrace some of the changes that were made during the pandemic, but they are not ready yet to embrace same-day registration. They decided to study the issue more, which suggests that it may or may not be acted on years in the future. State <laughs> Rep. Russell Holmes had a pretty cynical reaction to that decision by his colleagues. House leadership made the wrong call on this. This to me is protecting incumbency, and I have not heard another argument, and that is antithetical to all of democracy and certainly does not help black and brown people. Uh, you think he's onto something there? I think House leadership has always uh, been focused on protecting incumbency. And Massachusetts has for a long time had one of the lowest you know, rates of turnover, like the fewest number of challenges. And you know, uh, successive House speakers have seen it as their mission to preserve incumbency. So yeah, I mean, when you know, we've seen in Boston, in the greater Boston area, elections where you've had tremendous turnover, and it's been driven by uh, increased voting by people of color. Um, looking at Ayanna Presley, um, Rachel Rollins, and then also there's another uh, dynamic that's happening here, which is that greater numbers of young people are voting. In the case of Ed Markey, that protected an incumbent, but I think a lot of uh, legislators who you know, may have been elected 10 years ago are looking at these, these, these new waves of voters and uh, um, you know, perhaps seeing it as a threat. Shannon Jenkins, what does political science research say about the upside of same-day voter registration? So I think when, when political scientists look at the effect of election laws, we look at it sort of as, as voter turnout as having two different components, one being sort of an in, individual level cost and benefit 
um, effect. We can raise the cost of voting or we can lower the cost of voting for any individual. But there's also a mobilization effect, which is a sort of a collective thing, right? And you can think about people wearing their I voted stickers, getting people out to the polls. And so laws can have positive and negative effects on both sides of that equation. And so, for instance, early voting can reduce the cost to individuals to turn out, but it also dilutes the mobilization effect because people are voting on different days. So we know that early voting doesn't tend to move the needle on voter turnout. Same day registration moves the needle on both of those. It both makes it easier for individuals to participate and it makes it easier for people to mobilize people. If you show up to someone's door and you knock on their door on election day and there's not registered, there's nothing you can do right now. But if you show up on election day and someone's not registered, you can still bring them to the polls and get them to vote. So same day registration is really a critical piece of legislation to increase participation in our democracy. The research on that is pretty fundamentally clear. Um, I think I was absolutely right about how that threatens incumbents when new people come into the electorate. You can't be really sure how they're going to how they're going to vote. Um, but at the same point in time, as a political scientist, I find it disappointing um, because this is really a law that has positive impacts on both those aspects um, of the voting process. All right. Shannon Jenkins and Yawu Miller, thank you for that convo. It's been more than 13 months since the first COVID vaccine was administered in the U.S. outside of trials, more than nine months since adults across the board in Massachusetts became eligible to get a shot. And as of this week, 87% of people in the state have gotten at least one vaccine dose. It's a number to celebrate, but also a number many point to to declare this is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated a turn of phrase that implies a choice in that status. But for kids under five, getting vaccinated still is not an option. And for their parents and caregivers, the pandemic can feel like it's still stuck in neutral. They're weighing infection risks against developmental needs and hoping to get through a full week with childcare intact and without having to quarantine. The accumulated stress led one local mom with young kids to gather fellow parents into a field recently for a so-called primal scream, which attracted plenty of media attention and inspired similar events nationwide, showcasing the collective anger and exhaustion felt by so many. So is all of this inevitable or could policymakers be doing more? Joining me are GBH News reporter Craig Lamold and Gladys Vega, executive director of Chelsea's La Collaborativa. Thank you both for being here. Gladys, let me start with you. I got a rundown of what the state has done recently to try to ease the burden on parents and caregivers. And there are some big things, uh, financial relief provided to daycare providers, financial relief also provided to lower income parents, for example. To your mind, what are the biggest things the state could be doing right now to make things better? So remember that although the state has done a lot, we still have approximately 29,000 children that are excluded because their parents undocumented status. So imagine, you know, that child tax credit doesn't apply for them. Um, I think that we still need to work on policies that would address the issues every children in the United States. I think that um, that for Chelsea families, the burden remains um, not being able to fully go back to work, not having access to childcare, not having children being uh, fully vaccinated because their their 
the lack of trust of something so new. Um, so I think all those things play a huge role as we think of creating policies that address the needs of a family in, in communities like Chelsea. You and I talked just briefly before this show, and one of the things you mentioned to me was that the state, as you see it, could be making it easier for people to become childcare providers, right? Why would that be valuable, do you think? So I think it's extremely valuable because if, if a mom is able to um, not find a job and she's able to get the skills from the Department of Early Education so that they can get the license um, to start a child care process, a home child care, why not and make it available? Um, that way they can, if they have a small children, that child, they can stay home. It's also very, very pricey. Child care is extremely pricey when, yeah. pricey when you go private. You know, I remember my daughter was paying $350 um, for three days a week. Um, and it wasn't like, you know, it was... It wasn't like he was in a Montessori school, um, but it was that amount of money. So, I mean, if you are a parent and you need to choose between quality daycare and um, and paying the rent, of course, the daycare will be out of the question. And you may have to leave, leave a younger sibling behind doing the child right. care. Whereas if you, um, if you can find child care, then you can be comfortable about the kid, uh, that your child getting good care, and you can go back to work and make money for your family. Exactly. Let me bring in, yep. Hold, yep. hold these thoughts, let me bring in Craig Lamold, who I know has a young child uh, in a daycare or a childcare setting right now. You guys recently experienced firsthand the chaos that COVID can create at this particular moment in time for people like you. What happened to your family, Craig? Yeah, and I think what happened to us is is in no way unusual. Um, and you know, we made it through certainly. But uh, two things: first of all, a child in my uh, my child's daycare class tested positive for COVID, which I think is just happening basically all over the state right now. And um, you know, he was home for basically a, about a week as they uh, and then needed to get a PCR test uh, that came back negative before he could return to school. So. You know, for us, we're you know, working parents and, and that was a bit of a challenge. And, you know, we were able to get by. We were able to, you know, take some days off and, and to balance some things. But this is this is really a challenge, especially uh, for a lot of people who are, are lower income and, and don't have the ability to just take a day off. Uh, also, the week after the holidays, the entire daycare program shut down because they didn't have enough teachers who were able to come in to, to care for the students. And, you know, they were either COVID positive themselves or they had someone in their family who was. And the daycare program just said, that's it. We can't, we can't open for this week. Thankfully, it opened up the next week. But I just, you know, talked to somebody uh, at the, the State Association for Early Childhood Education and Care who said, mentioned a program in Worcester that has uh, 13 of 15 classes currently closed down because they, uh, they just don't have the, the teachers or because of positive tests in classes. I know the state is about to roll out a change in the way testing is done in daycare settings. What exactly is going to be changing when that happens, either later this month or, or early February? Yeah, as of Monday, they're supposed to be rolling out this program. Um, and it's important to note that this is entirely optional for daycares because unlike the K-12 system, this is not a public system of schools. These are you know thousands of private businesses who, who have an option to do something or not do it if they want to. 
Um, but what's, what's, there's three levels to the testing. One actually has been in place since June, which is pool testing. I personally didn't realize that this was even available to daycare since June, but they have had free pool testing available to them uh, in that time. And uh, what's being added as of Monday is rapid antigen tests are being made available. And that'll be done in two, one of two different ways. Um, one is what they call cohort testing, which is like, for example, when the, the, a child in my kid's class tested positive, uh, the other parents can have their kids tested uh, using rapid antigen tests. And if they test negative, they can continue to go in. He wouldn't have to stay home with us like he did uh, that time. Um, that could either be done by the parents at home or the daycare center could choose to do it themselves. Um, and in addition to the cohort testing, there's also uh, symptomatic testing. So if a kid in daycare, you know, has a sniffle, which we know kids in daycare. Every single kid in daycare has, right, right. Yeah, that, that a, 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 one of the people in the daycare could give a rapid antigen test to that kid or send one home for the parent to do it. Um, you know, I talked to daycares about this and I think there's a real difference of opinion about whether or not they're even going to, to do this, you know, how much of the program they're going to take part in. It's really resource intensive. It's a, it's a lot to for the, the daycares to train uh, their staff and to make sure that this is, is done properly. Um, you know, with the pool testing, it's, it's three and above, age three and above. Under age three, it has to be done by a nurse. So you'd have to have an in-staff in nurse to actually do that kind of thing. That's the sort of complexity that doesn't even occur to me when I think about a program like this. Gladys Vega, the point you were making um, when I brought Craig in a moment ago was the incredibly high cost of childcare. And I, I remember that from when my kids were that age, it can be brutal. You co-wrote a piece for the Bay State Banner a little while ago, urging state mm -hmm. legislators and policymakers to expand the child care tax credit at the state level. Did they act on your request? So they acted in different parts of their request. It's not fully what we asked for. It's better, but not every child of the families that we serve are able to participate. Many of them are excluded in the process. That is why um, La Colaborativa from the families that we serve, we heard it over and over again that in order for them to sort of like get off unemployment benefits or go back to fully work, uh, they need childcare. So we are trying to put together this childcare co-op that allows for um, our families to create their own childcare um, license um, services so that they're able to do childcare from home. It, we were forced to think creatively on that because we know that at times a lot of parents cannot able to maintain their childcare because at times if they're, you know, if someone gets COVID, all the kids get, their, their daycare may get closed down or if someone gets COVID at work, she may be sent home and the woman who's taking care of them says, you know what, you're not giving me consistency. I cannot keep my childcare open. So we're trying our best to be extremely creative about also childcare that may be, they may have an opportunity where you drop a, a kid and it doesn't have to be the regular um, kid all the time. Um, that way there's a one day drop off, it may be Carmen, the other one with maybe little Gloria who needs the daycare, but being very creative about how we think about childcare, just because um, we need to figure out what to do with, with 
um, the services that are not fully provided, especially if we're trying to integrate the community back to work, if we're trying to promote, provide trainings and make sure that our community is able to sustain. Remember, there's a lot of services that were put together um, during the pandemic. All those services soon will be gone and it leaves behind a community that is extremely poor and a community with lots of unknowns due to the fact that you never know when you have a new variant that um, will allow for us to take another step back. Yeah, yeah. So I think that we're thinking creatively on how do we handle um, the 29,000 children that have been excluded from, you know, from not receiving the tax break. Craig Lamold, as Gladys was just saying, there is uh, an opportunity at the state level to provide financial relief. There's an opportunity at the federal level, but the Build Back Better package that President Biden wanted to get passed seems to be stuck, uh, pretty much going nowhere in Washington. You are doing some reporting right now in Lawrence, where they're doing some creative things municipally. What are they doing exactly in Lawrence? Yeah, it, it is an interesting thing. Um, and as you said, you know, Build Back Better uh, essentially is uh, on hold at the, uh, at the very least. Um, uh, Catherine Clark, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, was talking to people just uh, yesterday in the business community saying that she was optimistic that this was actually going to get over the finish line. You know, they, they're breaking it up into the component parts. But at the state level and on the municipal level, there are other uh, attempts at doing this. And in Lawrence, uh, they have expanded the voucher program. Uh, there, so in the state, there is a voucher program that is available to low-income people to help them uh, qualify and pay for uh, child care. Um, but it's not, you know, it, it's not available to a lot of people. Uh, right now, if so, a single parent who makes $45,000 a year uh, does not qualify for this state subsidy for daycare, even though for an infant, it can cost $21,000 a year just to pay for that care. So it's, it's you know, really not available to a lot of people. And what they're doing in Lawrence is they're expanding who's essentially available for that. Um, you know, they used federal grants and they're using the city budget to pay for uh, child care for more families. Um, so they've made it so that uh, anybody who uh, falls below 50% of median income, a uh, state median income, uh, qualifies for a voucher. And uh, anybody else uh, can get it if uh, the, 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 how much it would cost them, it goes up to 8% of their income. That, when that's you a big this issue, me, right? I was, I was just, I was fascinated by this because I think of it as something that cities and towns don't have control over, but obviously that's not the case. Uh, we only have about 45 seconds left. I want to ask each of you very quickly, uh, a bunch of physicians, about 250, signed a letter recently urging the federal government to move quicker when it comes to getting vaccines to younger children. Um, briefly, about 10 seconds each of you, Gladys Vega, is there an appetite in Chelsea and among the people you serve to get really young kids vaccinated when it becomes available? And then I'd like to hear from Craig. Yes, there is. Send them to us and we'll make it happen. Okay, excellent. And Craig, uh, would you have any hesitation about getting your younger kid the vax when they can? When when the federal government says that it yep. is safe and uh, they're opening it up, absolutely not. I would be thrilled yes. and I feel like he's he's vulnerable now and that would protect him. 
All right, Craig Lamold and yes. Gladys Vega, thank you both. Really appreciate it. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week and please tell us what you think. Keep sending your story ideas and feedback our way. The email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Or you can find me on Twitter at Riley Adam. For now, thank you for watching and good night. Thank you.